Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, how periodicals provided a mirror of a changing Ireland, Irish lives in America, the music of Bess Cronin, the Queen of Irish Song, legacies of the Magdalen Laundries, and we'll find out about death threats and threatening letters in 19th century Ireland. If you miss any part of tonight's show and want to listen back to it, just go to our website, newstalk.com, and subscribe to get new episodes weekly on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with periodicals and journalism in 20th century Ireland. Periodicals have been at the core of journalistic activity since before the foundation of the state, but have remained an area long neglected within media history. But a new volume featuring essays by leading media historians looks at a range of areas, including case studies of key periodicals such as Fortnite in Dublin, Status and The Phoenix, and also looking at periodicals produced by religious bodies, the Irish language lobby, the women's rights movement, and the Gay Rights Campaign. The book is called Periodicals and Journalism in 20th Century Ireland, Volume 2, A Variety of Voices. It's edited by Mark O'Brien and Felix Larkin, uh, published in hardback by Four Courts Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the two editors to the show tonight. Felix and Mark, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. Felix, I might begin with you, and I might begin with a broad question about what you and Mark are hoping to do with uh, these volumes by by exploring the range of, of journalistic activities that we have over the 20th century when it comes to periodicals. Well, as you pointed out, uh, Patrick, it is the second of two volumes. And between the two volumes, there are 29 chapters, uh, most of them uh, highlighting Uh, individual uh, periodicals. And what we're trying to do is to establish the place of these periodicals in news journalism. Uh, Most people associate periodicals as literary miscellanies, but there is a very strong tradition of news journalism, healthier, arguably, than in the daily newspapers, um, very much catering for minority interests, dissident interests, but not necessarily dissident. Uh, And what we've sought to do in these two volumes is to bring a focus on that news angle of periodical journalism. Mark, it's very interesting what Felix there said about dissident interests and I know it goes beyond it and it's a very uh, valuable study when it comes to media history, but I think it's also a very... uh, very important volume if you are writing about activism in the 20th century, if you're writing about any of these uh, uh, civil campaigns, because you're getting great insights into the movements through the periodicals. Indeed. Uh, One of the key things about periodicals, of course, is that they act as, I suppose, the the vocal element for a lot of social activists. And one of the key things about the present volume is that it focuses very much on social activists. There's, there's quite a number of, of, of chapters that focus in on particular um, activist groups, particularly women, actually. There's, there's about three or four chapters focusing in on periodicals um, for minority groups, and of course, particularly uh, women for like uh, Status Magazine, um, the Irish Housewife, Irish uh, produced women's magazines in the 50s and 60s, all of which um, display a campaigning Ethos. Uh, another chapter examines the role of um, various magazines that were associated with the Irish gay rights movement that developed in the 1970s. It's 
those interesting nuggets. It's that, it's that process behind, you know, people think that, you know, social change happens overnight. It doesn't. Felix, could you tell us about your own article? Because it's a fascinating look as we come towards the end of the Second World War uh, in a series that the bell runs and you've entitled it Mirrors of a Changing Ireland. Yes, it's, it's an extremely innovative piece uh, and typical of the bell under Sean O'Fallon's editorship. And it is looking at six newspapers or periodicals, including the bell itself. And even still, the press is very reluctant to examine itself. Uh, So these articles appeared in 1944, 1945. And it was really revolutionary almost at that stage that any organ uh, would look at its competitors or its colleagues, if if you if you want to put it that way, uh, it's typical of O'Fallon, because O'Fallon's aim in the Bell was to open windows on uh, aspects of Irish society which were you know somewhat uh, unexamined, and the press was one of these. And over a period of six articles, he has two authors uh, writing about Dublin Opinion magazine the Irish Times, the Irish Press, the Irish Independent, the Catholic Press, and the Bell itself. And his two authors are very interesting. Um, They were Vivian Mercer and Conor Cruz O'Brien, who both were recent graduates of Trinity College and went on to become serious and important literary critics, apart from Conor Cruz O'Brien's other accomplishments. Felix, some great chapters as well on some of the periodicals that give an insight into into different parts of Irish life. For example, Andy Pollock's piece on Fortnight, and you get a great insight into the troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, Ian Dalton on the Church of Ireland Gazette. Uh, there's uh, Patrick Maugham on the Catholic Bulletin and so on. But I also really like the piece on, on, on the Phoenix, Phoenix magazine, because when you read Phoenix, you don't necessarily think that in in, in a few decades' time, historians will be studying it and and. Exactly examining the insights we get into uh, society for that time. It's a very interesting uh, instance where there is continuity between two publications because Phoenix arose out of the ashes of the Hibernia magazine, uh, hence the name The Phoenix. Uh, And both had the reputation of being prepared to publish risky news, uh, stuff that maybe the mainline newspapers, maybe on legal advice or otherwise. So the uh, Phoenix essay is a continuity. Obviously, it's continuity in ownership with John Mulcahy, the late John Mulcahy. Um, The other angle that's interesting about Phoenix is quite satirical edge to it. especially in its covers, which um, echo the covers of Private Eye in the UK. Well, congratulations to both of you on, uh, I think, uh, two wonderful volumes. And I think they're volumes that scholars are going to be using uh, for many years to come, giving these uh, wonderful insights into uh, periodicals and journalism in 20th century Ireland, but also uh, into uh, minority interest in in activism in these various uh, brilliant campaigns over the century as well. The book is called Periodicals and Journalism in 20th Century Ireland, number two, A Variety of Voices. It's edited by Mark O'Brien and Felix Larkin. 
Talking history, history on News Talk. The Irish struck out across America's frontiers, built its railroads, fought on both sides of the Civil War, and captured its major historic moments in print, paint, and bronze, led by many of its religious denominations. Irish policed its streets, set up its banks, educated its masses, and entertained America on its stages and screens, as well as in its sporting arenas, and made groundbreaking contributions in science and engineering. And a new book brings together 50 Irish people who made an indelible mark on American society, politics and culture. The book is called Irish Lives in America, published in paperback by the Royal Irish Academy. Uh, It's part of their Dictionary of Irish Biography uh, set of entries and uh, selected from that and wonderfully edited by Liz Evers and Neve Gallagher. Liz and Neve, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Patrick. Thanks very much, Patrick. Uh, It's a brilliant collection of uh, 50 50 lives and it gives you an insight into, I suppose, the many more lives because you have pirates like Anne Bonny, you have uh, surgeons, you have Rex Ingram, the film director, you have Maureen O'Hara. But I suppose, Liz, the question is, how did you narrow it down to just 50? That I'm sure the challenge was that uh, you probably could have had 500 if you wanted. We, it, nearly 500, in fact, in the Dictionary of Irish Biography, which was our, our main source. Um, so, yeah, the, the selection process was quite challenging. We had somewhere between four and 500 uh, people to choose from. So we set out our criteria. We wanted people to be Irish-born migrants to America who impacted, not necessarily always positively, on American culture, society or political life. And we wanted to have a mixture of well-known figures and also some less well-known figures. We didn't want to have like a a best of as such. You know, we wanted it to be above all interesting and maybe with a few unexpected twists and turns in there. But also we wanted our selection to to kind of capture the broad view of Irish America and, and the different waves of migration that created it and to capture in capturing that broad view, um, we were able to bring in people maybe who lived lives of poverty and hardship, who worked as servants, so who were more representative of the kind of wider um, wave of immigration, especially in the 19th century. And also mixed in with those people, we have titans of industry who were the country's first millionaires. We have really important political figures. And we have a, a good span of history there as well from, from the earliest colonial period right up to contemporary times. And Neve, it's interesting what Liz said there about uh, they're not necessarily uh, the best in terms of the, the moral lives that they live because it's it's not just great figures, it's also some, well, perhaps villains or you know bad figures as well that uh, you, you've tried to cover the entire spectrum of life and activity. We have. We wanted to show that, you know, rich tapestry of Ireland, we're not all heroes, some of us are villains as well. And so as well as exporting some of our best, we also exported some of our worst. So, for example, Margaret Hottery would have been wonderful. She made positive contribution to American society. Uh, And although she suffered enormous tragedy herself, she rose above it to better the society around her in New Orleans. Whereas somebody like Pierce Butler, you know, he fought uh, with the British originally, and then switched sides in the American Revolution. But he married a very wealthy South Carolina landowner, and through that became a, a massive slave owner. And his contribution to American society was as a delegate to the Philadelphia Convention in 1787, when he insisted on including a runaway slave act, uh, Clause 4, which um, 
said that any slaves that ran away had to be returned to their owner, regardless of if they'd crossed into a, a free state or not. So really, we can see there that you've got, as you said, the best, but also the worst, you know. And Liz, you also made sure that the ordinary immigrant was was also uh, included. So people like Annie Moore or Elizabeth Jackson, that uh, that you were getting the people who, who were just this you know, a, a regular person, but making that huge, difficult journey. Yeah, we were lucky in that we have a few figures who kind of because of maybe what came next or because of one particular incident in their life were, were considered notable enough to be included in not just the, the Dictionary of Irish Biography, but just generally the historical record, whereas these are people who would have otherwise slipped through the cracks. But they were, you know, they're very much representative of um, different types of migrants. So we have Elizabeth Jackson, who has become known because she is the mother of Andrew Jackson, who is the seventh president of America. But she was just a very ordinary um, emigrant from Ulster uh, going over to the frontier in the Carolinas in the late 18th century. Um, And she was originally from Carrickfergus. They were farming family and she had you know, fairly horrendous experience in, in America because of the time they arrived was the first stirrings of the American Revolution. She lost her husband quite young um, and then she lost one son um, and then another. And then she herself died, leaving Andrew an orphan um, without any relatives. Well, he had aunts and that over there already, but his parents were gone, his siblings were gone. Um, so you don't really get to tell a story like that because they're just not recorded. But but thankfully, because of who her son went on to become, we have some information about her. And um, we also have Margaret Marr, who's quite an unusual inclusion in that she was a domestic servant. And again, you know, she she's representative of, of the people who are known as the Bridgets, all of those Irish women who went over and, and entered domestic service. But again, whose stories just really aren't available to us. Um, and she was remembered because she was working for Emily Dickinson's family and she's credited with conserving Emily's poetry after her death. Um, otherwise, again, she would have just slipped through the cracks. You know, this uh, this lady from Tipperary who who spent her, her whole adult life as a servant. And Eve, there are many other interesting connections with American culture uh, as well and also with American society and medicine and journalism and everything from yeah. uh, the, the department store and the development of that in the United States to the development of tabloid journalism and you've got someone very interesting like Richard Kyle Fox to medicine and like the, the first smallpox vaccinations that really this is like a mini history of the development of the United States as well. It really is. I mean, it's it's such a such a rich tapestry of people that that went over. You know, you have John Crawford, who was one of the first to administer um, the yellow, uh, sorry, the um, smallpox vaccine um, at a time when vaccines <laughs> weren't popular. You know, I mean, it was one of the first in the world. He was also he had a theory on the causes of disease. He believed that disease was caused by contagium, which are tiny organisms. And then you have Richard Kyle Fox at the other end of the spectrum, who practically created and invented uh, tabloid journalism. He took over uh, the failing um, New York National Police Gazette, and he turned it into one of the most popular newspapers of its time, printed on pink paper and featuring frolicking ladies. And he promoted boxing so intensely that he was inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame just recently. He brought us tabloid journalism. And then 
on a completely different scale, we have Alexander Turney Stewart, who almost well, uh, single-handedly invented um, modern shopping. He gave the world the largest emporium um, on Broadway in New York. And he also in, uh, gave us mail ordering. So catalogues like Sears and stuff have taken a leaf out of his book and um, and used mail ordering uh, to get goods all over America. But that was Alexander Turney Stewart who invented us. So incredible people um, contributing to all walks of life in American society. Liz, is there a, a, a an, an Irish American identity being created in this period, and uh, do we can we identify maybe who are the people who might be uh, creating it? Yeah, certainly in the in the nineteenth century, with the kind of famine generation going over um, to America, obviously in huge numbers, that that is kind of when what we now I suppose associate. Um, as the Irish American identity was was born, very much a Catholic identity, this kind of um, underdog figure, and the two people that certainly in the course of our research I would describe with really helping to shape um, that identity uh, were Marianne Sadlier, who was a novelist and publisher, and Michael L. Logan, who ran a journal called The Gale. Both of them were kind of operating against this anti-Irish Catholic nativism in America at the time, because obviously, as so many people were migrating from famine-stricken Ireland, they weren't being given the warmest of welcomes. They were very much getting the treatment that we see, you know, in, in contemporary circumstances that people fleeing and coming into Western countries get. We were, you know, the Irish were kind of the, the precursor to that kind of refugees um, and so they were going into a very frosty environment. And also at the same time, they were trying to preserve the culture that they were bringing with them rather than just totally assimilating and losing their Irishness. And that was very much the mission of both Sadlier and Logan. Uh, Sadlier um, had moved just over to um, Canada and then to America just before the famine. But she was also uh, the novelist who wrote the first ever fictional description of the famine and also the first person to kind of she wrote it also within her first novel. Uh, it's called New Lights or Life in Galway. She wrote a polemic on superism as well. So that was the first time that that would have kind of been put out there in the American public. And um, she tended to have these black and white stories about upstanding Irish Catholics kind of trying to preserve their their sanctity amongst the sinful American Protestants. She was very concerned with the effects of public education uh, rather than religious education on migrants faith. And she was a roaring success. Um, she had a ready made audience, obviously, with all these this new Irish immigrants. All of her books were, were bestsellers. And you have Michael Logan, who's known as the uh, the father of the Gaelic language movement. And he migrated in the 1870s. He was in his 30s when he came to America. And he very much made it his mission to try and um, keep the Irish language alive amongst the new emigrants to America. Well, it's an excellent collection of essays, Irish Lives in America from the Royal Irish Academy's Dictionary of Irish Biography series and published in paperback by the Royal Irish Academy and the editors Liz Evers and Neve Gallagher. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. 
Welcome back to Talking History. A new collection of essays raises incisive questions about the links between the post-colonial carceral system, which thrived in Ireland after 1922, and larger questions of gender, sexuality, identity, class, race and religion. The collection is called Legacies of the Magdalene Laundries, Commemoration, Gender and the Post-Colonial Carceral State. It's published in hardback by Manchester University Press and the editors are Miriam Houghton, Mary McAuliffe and Emily Pine. And I'm delighted to welcome Mary McAuliffe back to the show tonight. Mary, you're very welcome back. Thank you. It's a very powerful collection of essays. And can you tell us about maybe the approach? Because it's in two parts. Uh, Part one is about witnessing and remembering and focuses on the the Magdalene laundries and, 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 and the story there. But part two shows these very interesting parallel histories, both in the past and now. So it's looking at things like uh, Ireland's direct provision centres. It's uh, looking at uh, the mother and baby homes. It's looking at cases uh, elsewhere. So it's very much, you know, broadening the story beyond the Magdalene laundries. Yes, and I think that was the um, uh, remit behind the conference we held, which uh, out of which the collection of essays came in 2016, which was the 20th anniversary of the closing of Sean McDermott Street, Magdalen. Um, and so we had people talking about the Magdalen Laundry's history and memory and witnessing and remembering. And then we, we made a deliberate uh, choice to see, see these in conversation with uh, the contemporary structures that are used to incarcerate and regulate bodies that are not, um, you know, seen as... as uh, necessary in the contemporary Irish state. And what do we mean when we talk about the post-colonial carceral state? Are we talking about uh, people who are I suppose, incarcerated in, in some kind of institution and might necessarily be a prison? Yes, uh, you know, and in fact isn't necessarily a prison at all. It, the, the carceral state really is about how uh, the system of institutionalisation continued on for, you know, down to the 1990s um, where women who were considered not respectable or deviant were children, uh, were institutionalized in, in um, industrial schools, women in, in Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes, but also psychiatric institutions and other institutions of so-called care, uh, which were used basically to hide away, to imprison um, and, and push the people away from society. Did you and your fellow editors make a decision that this was deliberately not going to be a volume just looking backwards in the past? It was also about looking forward and about what lessons we can learn and what lessons we need to learn. Well, yes, we we all come from different disciplinary backgrounds. So this is a determinately interdisciplinary collection. Uh, Miriam works in theatre and cultural studies, Emily in English um, and, of course, I in gender studies and history. Um, so that interdisciplinarity coming from the editors informed the book. And so you see that a very determined idea to uh, do the witnessing and remembering, but also these parallel histories then and now, as we call part two. Uh, and to see that you, you, you can't just look back, uh, particularly when we are talking about institutionalization in Ireland, because it continues into the contemporary. And it also exposes how women and children were incarcerated in many different ways. There were different forms that that took. Oh, yes. Um, I think, for example, um, Conal O'Farrita's uh, chapter on, um, you know, FOIing 
the material to get a, a, a information on one woman's um, access to her own um, child, you know, and information about her own child uh, who she'd given birth to in a mother and baby home was absolutely extraordinary. Sarah Ann Buckley's Lorraine Grimes case studies of children's home in Ireland and the UK, which is interesting as well, because, of course, this was happening among the diaspora is very interesting. Um, and so how and Murray Dinwright then talked about the, the, the law and the state and the Magdalene laundries and the different routes into these systems. Uh, it wasn't just one way. It wasn't just the church putting people in or the state putting people in. There were many routes into these institutions. Also a very interesting piece by Mary McGill on the film Philomena, which uh, took one story from uh, the mother and baby and, and, and told a very powerful story with it. Yes, of course, that is the... Um, uh, the uh, Philomena was a very interesting film in that it was a film, you go to the cinema and you get a story, but it was quite, you know, the relationship between the, the two main leads, the journalist and, of course, Philomena searching for her child. And as Mary McGill talks about, there was an uneasy comedy at the centre of that. Um, but it, it also revealed the absolute horror of the mother and baby homes and the denial of uh, access to their own stories by the nuns who ran the home. And the fact then, I suppose, they, for me, the, the hardest part of that is that Philomena's son had actually been searching for her as well and then died before they could get to meet the final chapter looks at Ireland's direct provision centres and the subtitle is Our Past and Our Present. Does this connect directly to these other types of stories that you're telling? Yes, and I think there is no denying that. Um, the chapter was written by uh, a man, a Volkerson, who had actually spent time in the direct provision centre, but as an artist used his skill to take photographs and to talk about the direct provision centres through that. Um, and and we have to admit, I think, in our contemporary society that the ideologies underpinning direct provision are a direct legacy and inheritance from those ideologies that underpinned all the other institutional centres, those that carceral system that we talk about from the foundation of the state. Sarah Ann Buckley and Lorraine Grimes have a wonderful piece on looking at case studies of children's homes in Ireland and in the UK. Are there similarities that the same type of system or was the Irish experience different from the British one? It wasn't. There were similarities, as, as Sarah Ann and Lorraine point out. Uh, however, in Britain, what happens is it doesn't go on as long. Uh, and the uh, Irish one continues much longer into the history of the state. Um, but of course, you know, with the huge Irish diaspora in Britain at, at that time, right down to today, I suppose, in many ways, um, there were similar systems in place as well. Does a lot of it, when you talk about the Magdalene laundries and mother and baby, and is there a lot of it that comes down to uh, inherent suspicion of women, that women are entrusted and that therefore uh, they are, uh, they have to be policed in these different ways? Oh, absolutely. We can see it in the concept of respectability, that if women weren't living up to this very, very narrowly defined concept of respectability, marriage, motherhood and domesticity, that then something had to be done about that, that they were a danger to the state and to our concepts of Irishness and who and what we were ourselves. 
But there's also a class component to this that we can't really forget because for the industrial schools, for example, it is an awful lot of working class children. And for the mother and baby homes, it's mostly young working class women. So I think we have to see there's an intersection of class and gender, um, you know, uh, uh, tensions and anxieties around poverty and gender going on in Irish society at this time. And the very title, Legacies of the Magdalen Laundries, it shows very clearly, and as our chat has shown, there are many different legacies, and it's not just a single one, but what do you see as the most powerful of the legacies? I think the most powerful of the legacies is that we are still grappling with um, restorative justice. Um, as much responses to the McAleese report in one of the chapters look at the inadequacy of the McAleese report and indeed similar responses to the mother and baby um, inquiry most recently, we still haven't come to terms with those legacies. We still, as a, as a society and as a people, find, shy away from really taking a hard look at what we as a state and we as a people did to people we didn't want to be included in society over the lifetime of our independent state. And I think in many ways, those legacies are still playing out in our society. Okay, well, the book is called Legacies of the Magdalene Laundries, Commemoration, Gender and the Postcolonial Carceral State. It's published in hardback by Manchester University Press. The editors are Miriam Houghton, Mary McAuliffe and Emily Pine. And I'm delighted to be joined there by one of the editors, Mary McAuliffe. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, History on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. Victorian Ireland led the way when it came to threatening letters and a new book reveals the murky world where tens of thousands of these letters and notices were nailed to barn doors or sent by penny post. And they were intimidating, often giving fair warning and terrorising the recipients. The victims were sometimes landlords, land agents and land grabbers, but equally they could be small farmers disputing land occupancy with neighbours. And a new book examines the nature, extent and context of this unusual trend. The book is called You Will Die at Midnight, Victorian Threatening Letters. It's published in hardback. Uh, The author, Donald McCracken. And Donald, uh, you're very welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. Um, This book is actually... uh a throw from a, a previous book that you interviewed me with, uh, Inspector Mallon. Uh, I, I know, and, and it's, I think, a nice offshoot. He presumably uh, would have had access to many of these letters. Did he ever receive many of them himself? Yes, he did. Not that it would have disturbed Inspector Mallon very much, but uh, the, the, the remarkable thing is that in the National Archives, there are hundreds of these letters that have survived. Um, in fact, there's, there's one carton just full of the, the letters from, from Meath and West Meath, which were particularly um, fervent uh, when it came to threatening letters in the 1860s. And as you say, you know, the, the huge number of them, and some people were, were uh, received a lot more of them than others. So Captain Boycott, who, who gave his name to that whole uh, policy of boycotting someone, uh, he admitted to having a writing cabinet filled with threatening letters that he received. He did indeed, and sadly, his don't seem to have survived. Um, in fact, that's an interesting point. The RIC kept meticulous numbers, and throughout the Victorian period, I, I think I worked out there were 36,000 of these handed in at police stations and police barracks. But that was only the tip of the iceberg. 
uh, you could probably add a couple of notes to that to get the the actual figure. And people like Boycott just put them in his cabinet and kept them. It, in fact, it was a strange phenomenon because there was a reluctance to, you know, throw them into the fire. Um, there was a reluctance to give them to the police sometimes. And uh, they kept them. It was as if there was you know, a feeling that there was it was a bad omen to destroy a threatening letter. Whilst you might be temptuous of it, nonetheless, you, you were a wee bit cautious. So people like, the boycott was a, a, an extreme example. There were, there were many others who got it, and land agents, land stewards and the like. But what I found interesting when I was researching the book was not so much the obvious, I mean, you, you know, the, the poor evicted tenant and, and, and threatening letters, you know, emanating from that either against the landlord or uh, against the magistrate or against the people that were actually doing the, the eviction. But what fascinated me was the threatening letters that were being sent from tenant to tenant. Um, and that had no real political bearing. That was purely agrarian. It, it, it related to the possession, the occupancy of land. It related to grazing rights. Um, and it also related to employment. The only example I ever found of threatening art with a corpse in the coffin, because they, they had wonderful imagery, these, these letters, was relating to employment of men working on the roads. And uh, the, the magistrate had employed people uh, from 10 miles away, and they were regarded as foreigners and had to be got rid of, and local people had to, local men had to do the job. Do you think the letters were serious, that they meant to carry through the threat and, and commit acts of harm and violence against them, or was it just the people getting something off their chest? Like you might send an angry tweet, or some people would send angry tweets today, and that once they sent them, then they forgot about it. Well, there's a lot of similarities between the, the, the modern tweet and the Irish 19th century threatening letters. They were a form of intimidation. They were regarded and classified as an outrage, and they were the most numerous of the various outrages. I think really because they were the simplest. They were a, a nice um, sort of interim state uh, between spreading malicious rumor and gossip on the one hand and taking risky physical action on the other. Look, anyone who was, any of the, the land agents or, or stewards that, that were shot, say the land war, certainly had received threatening letters prior to that. But uh, they, they were, in, in a sense, the exception. The overwhelming majority of people who received threatening letters were, were not physically harmed. Um, now, they may have had a stone thrown through their, their window, or their, their cattle may have been maimed, which was a particularly nasty occurrence that, that took place and which was roundly denounced by, by Michael Davitt and, and John Dillon and, and the more advanced of the, of the Irish nationalists. But uh, no, it was nearly as if you were, you were giving fair warning that uh, the ribbon societies, the secret societies were mixed up in it as well. They were written in this strange sort of stilted legalese um, speak there's never sort of any swear words in them, and it's, they're very, very rarely rude. But they do say you're going to be killed. Um, so there's a, a strange sort of contradiction in them. And sometimes people even send threatening letters to themselves uh, because it was part of some bigger deception or they wanted to, to come across as victims or whatever. Yes. Police were very astute about a threatening letter. 
they tended to know what was what, mainly because they knew what was what in the, in the neighborhood. Um, I came on a wonderful example of, of someone who claimed of a threatening letter, and he was painting a castle. And the police said, you know, this landlord is now being boycotted. This character has agreed and signed a contract to paint the castle. Uh, how is he going to get out of it? And the only way he could get out of it was saying, oh, sorry, me lord, I can't do it because they're threatening me and I might, I might be shot. So um, that was used. Uh, the, other, the other thing was just to draw attention to themselves, which, which was a, a, an occurrence. And incidentally, these letters... Um, it wasn't just men uh, that were involved in them, w- women as well. Women sending threatening letters, a woman's hand, as the uh, the RIC report said, but also women receiving threatening letters. From what I can gather, the couple of three or four instances I, I found of women receiving threatening letters, they were more capable than, than any man of defending themselves. And in fact, the police, in one instance, dryly commented that... Um, uh, Mrs. Callahan was known to be able to uh, to shoot a rabbit at 300 meters, so no one was going to take any liberties with her. Um, but there was no gender didn't come into it, um, class didn't come into it. In a sense, it didn't matter who you were. If there was a, a problem, a grudge, um, a, an obstacle, you could receive a, a threatening letter. And these threatening letters are remarkable documents. When you know when they go to for sale in White's auction rooms, they get sort of five, six hundred euros. <laughs> they're coming, they're big money. And you can understand why. Because threatening art uh, was an art in itself. You had uh, these, invariably a coffin, sometimes with or without a body inside, usually with a message, a separate message within the coffin. There were the antiquated weaponry, the flintlocks, the pistols, the tar muskets, the blunderbusses, the sabers. That were, that were all there. Um, and then occasionally you'd rarer things like um, severed limbs, uh, skulls and crossbones, graves and bodies within coffins in, in shrouds. So there's a whole category of art. And the question arises, you know, who, who did this? Um, because whilst some of them were written in very bad English, sometimes that English one got the impression it was deliberately written in bad English. And the police felt that often uh, the local schoolmaster uh, could, no doubt for a, a small remuneration, pen you a, a threatening letter against the landlord, whoever you were aiming at. And uh, one of the landlords himself says that there was, there was a man in Kerry who was well known, a cobbler, who would write you a threatening letter if you wanted one to be written. And the the bad spelling and grammar explains the, uh, your title because it's you will die at midnight, but die is spelt D-Y-E. Yes, and there is a sort of sense of humour in some of these letters. And in fact, they're, they're quite bizarre, other ones. You know, there's little greetings and Aaron Gobach and, and, and shamrocks appearing, and nearly as if it was a picture postcard they were sending them, um, only announcing that you, you were going to be murdered. Very good. And it was very rare to get a conviction for sending threatening letters, even though it was a criminal offence. It was practically impossible. They they used handwriting experts, and there was one character who made a lot of money going round and, and getting lots of expenses, which annoyed the magistrates. The magistrates tended not to like the the handwriting experts. They they used photography in, from the 1860s onwards to try and crack the problem. But uh, conviction was was practically I won't say it was impossible, but it was very very difficult. Um, and you know of the numbers of arrests. 
The numbers then that went to trial was another matter, and then the numbers that were actually found guilty was, was, was very, very little. And the, the sentences that were handed out um, varied tremendously. In the early days, you know, around the famine years, uh, transportation was, was being handed out. But, you know, later on, it just became really regarded as an inconvenience so, you know, you get a, a fine or a, a couple of weeks or a month in prison or, so, or something like that. Um, but they were all recorded. So, so the, in, in a way, they skew the statistics for the, um, the outrage uh, crimes, you know, the, uh, compared with the more, the more serious ones like arson and, and attempted murder and, and murder. Well, it's a wonderful book. You Will Die at Midnight, Victorian Threatening Letters. Wonderful insight into 19th century Ireland uh, through uh, these uh, threatening and abusive letters. Uh, Polish and hardback by Eastwood Publications. The author, Donald McCracken. And Donald, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me on the programme, Patrick. Lovely speaking to you. Talking History on News Talk. Elizabeth Bess Cronin, the Queen of Irish Song, as Seamus Ennis called her, was probably the best-known Irish female traditional singer of her time. And a new edition of a book offers the complete Bess Cronin collection in Irish and English, with the texts of all her songs and a detailed analysis of everyone, as well as a biographical essay and two CDs. Take a listen to a clip of her singing right here. What would you do if you married a soldier? What would I do but you follow his gun? And what would you do if you date in the horse? And what would I do but you marry again? And what would you do if the kitten boiled over? What would I do but you fill it again? And what would you do if the cause had the clover? What would I do but you sit it again? The book is called The Songs of Elizabeth Cronin, Irish Traditional Singer. It's published by Four Courts Press. The author is Dovi O'Cronin. And Dovi, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Can you tell us about this new edition of the work and also, I suppose, what it's like approaching it as a grandson of Bess Cronin? Yeah, it's a strange kind of experience, all right. Actually, the original edition came out just over 20 years ago. But the reason why this one is out now is that there was such a demand. Uh, the book actually came out in a relatively um, well-stocked edition, I suppose you could say. The print run was about 2000, as I recall. But they were all snapped up. And ever since, for the last 20 years, I've had a steady stream of emails and letters and begging. Uh, basically, people ask me, did I have any copies left under the table or under the, the bed or whatever? And was there any possibility of having them available again? So finally now, with the thanks, or with the benefit of a, um, a benefactor in the States, I've been able to redo it, to, to uh, revisit all the songs again and, and uh, change a few things that needed changing and add on a few things that had come to light in the meantime. And tell us about her. She was born in 1879. She died in 1956. She, she sang in Irish and in English. And how, how significant a figure was she in her lifetime? Well, she was huge, I think, in terms of the singing tradition, because not only was she collected by the Irish Folklore Commission, you mentioned Seamus Ennis there in your introduction. He came first with the Folklore Commission, but then he came back once he had gone to the BBC he brought back the BBC uh, outside recording to record as well. And then there was a series of American collectors. Um, some of your listeners might have heard of the great Alan Lomax, who collected songs literally all over the world. You know, his collecting uh, activity was quite phenomenal. 
And he came because Bess's reputation was such that more or less anybody who was interested in Irish traditional singing, female unaccompanied singing in particular, uh, automatically came to Ballyborna, to West Cork, you know, to the Coulay or Muskery area to hear Bess Cronin. And you've also discovered some new new songs as well for yes, this. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I was always in hopes when the book came out 20 years ago, I was in hopes that somebody would come up with new recordings or new uh, copies of old songs that I knew. And in fact, at one of the uh, launches that we had in Coulay way back then, I'm sorry to say it's taken 20 years to get this into print, but at one of those launches at which, in fact, uh, your old friend and mine, John A. Murphy, uh, who died there recently, he sang a few songs. He was a great singer himself and, and liked Bessel's Crone and that kind of uh, traditional singing. But uh, a school teacher named Sean O'Meanicon came up to me after that launch and he put a brown envelope into my hand. Now, the, the concept of the brown envelope conjures up different things to you and me and to other people these days. But in the old days, it was fairly harmless. What was in it was an old school copybook. Uh, and Sean said that a neighbor of his, a good friend of Bess Cronin's, a man called John Connell, who was a fine singer himself, uh, he had asked Bess for some of her songs. Bess had written them out. She had a beautiful copper plate hand, so she wrote them out herself. She could write in English. She couldn't write in Irish for, for reasons we're well aware of. But uh, that, that copy book uh, disappeared. And 20 years later then, through Sean O'Meanicon, uh, it came back into circulation, so to speak. So I've added those songs. That's one of the appendices that I've added to the second edition. So there are new copies of some of the songs that Bess uh, had sung and that we knew already. But there's, I think, two, maybe three songs that I hadn't been aware of before then. And is it possible that there are other recordings? Because given that collectors did travel far and wide to hear her and to record her singing, it's possible that somewhere around the world there might be another recording. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right. And I live in hope. Uh, Certainly my father and other collectors, Sean O'Crony, who was my uncle and who was the full-time collector of folklore for the Folklore Commission between uh, 1939 and 65 when he passed away. He mentioned various people who passed through. You know, there are a lot of people who were interested and who would have been introduced to Bess and they passed through. And I like to think that one or two of them might have written down songs and maybe even recorded them, depending on whether they had the equipment or not. I mean, it's important to remember that in the late 40s and 50s, we're, we're talking about the beginnings of of recording, as we understand it, you know, um, magnetic tape recording and that kind of thing. So it's a possibility, as I say, that somebody out there has, you know, an old uh, magnetic tape that, that might come to light again and we'll get some old songs that we've never heard before, yeah. And was there a strong tradition of song collecting in the area, in Ballyvorney? There was actually, yeah. Um, there's a famous collection, probably the most famous collection to those who are interested in uh, the collecting of music and of, of singing in particular. There's the famous Freeman collection from Ballyvorney, which is Bess's area of the world. A. Martin Freeman was actually an Englishman, believe it or not, uh, Alexander Martin Freeman. He was very much taken up, swept up in that wave of enthusiasm for uh, the Irish language and all things Irish uh, in London round about the end of the uh, 20th century, late 1890s, 1900s, early 1900s and so on. And he actually came to Ballyvorna with his wife on a holiday. That's how it happened. It was so taken by the area and particularly by the singing tradition that he came back the following year, 1913, I think it was, and noted down the best songs from what he regarded or was told, at least, were the best singers. Now, Bess was too young at the time, so he collected from people who were of an older generation than Bess. But that Balavurna collection is famous in the literature. It's one of the early. It's, it's actually, it may well be the earliest of all collections. I mean, people think of Cecil Sharp and 
the tradition of the uh, English folk song and folk dance society and so on. And Cecil Sharp, um, interestingly enough, made his first collection in America, in the Appalachian uh, Mountains of Kentucky and that part of the world. And I think his collection appeared in 1918, but uh, Freeman's collection appeared slightly earlier than that. So he's a pioneer in that sense. But it shows you that the songs were already well known at the time and that there was a tradition of collecting uh, back in the early 1900s. She inspired traditional singers in her own lifetime. I wonder, does she still inspire traditional singers today? And is there something that they would pick up from listening to her recordings? I think she still is an inspiration. I mean, it's a name that everybody conjures with. Everybody knows who Bess Cronin was. And uh, if you think of Christy Moore on board the kangaroo and songs like that, um, he made that famous, but he acknowledges that he got that song from Bess Cronin, from a Bess Cronin recording. And there are various other songs. There's an, a younger generation, you know, the current generation, Nell Cronin, and of course, best known, I suppose, with my, my own cousin, Neil Leonard, um, who's in the direct tradition, obviously. Um, and he sings a lot of Bess's songs, along with his brother, Paddy, who works in T.T. Cahar. So the tradition is a living one and it's carried on. And that's really the reason why I did the book, because after my father died in 1990, it was his intention to do a book on his uh, on his mother after he had done various other projects that were close to his heart. And then when he passed away and the book wasn't there, the collection hadn't been published, I decided, you know, after Pietas and everything else, I'd have to do it myself. But the idea was to make all these songs available again, precisely for that reason, so that anybody who was interested in singing would have access, direct access, not only to the printed songs, but because the technology has moved on now, we were able to add these two CDs that you mentioned at the outset. And one of the CDs has predominantly songs in Irish and the other CD has predominantly songs in English um, because she was unique in that sense. I mean, there are other very well-known singers, as you know, either in the Irish tradition or in the English, one or both. If you think of Sarah Macon, for example, Tommy's uh, mother was a, a brilliant singer in her own right and had a great reputation and a great repertoire. But uh, Sarah Macon didn't sing songs in Irish, whereas Bess Cronin sang songs equally in Irish and English. And I think that's what attracted the collectors. And to give them their due, the Americans, the BBC and the Americans, uh, did collect her singing in Irish, even though obviously they wouldn't have been able to understand them. They had realized the importance of the tradition that was bilingual in Balavuan and elsewhere in Ireland. And it's available now in this wonderful paperback edition by uh, Four Courts Press, and there are the CDs. What's That's the right. next? What's the next step in in the telling of the story? <laughs> yeah, well, I rather foolishly um, gave a hostage to fortune, I suppose, when the first edition appeared, and said there would be a second edition of Bess Cronin's storytelling and so on. Bess Cronin was a Shanachie in her own right and recognised as such. And uh, I mentioned my uh, uncle, Sean O'Conning, who collected from her for the Folklore Commission. But there's a whole pile of stuff. She was she had a wonderful vocabulary and she was collected from by people like Professor Breen O'Creeve, Emma O'Creeve's father, who was a, a very fine Irish scholar himself. And those who were putting together collections of rare and unusual words, words that you wouldn't get, say, in Dunin's Dictionary, they made a beeline for Beth Cronin as well because she had words that nobody had heard before. So my intention is to gather all of this, uh, I wouldn't say ephemera, uh, but it's not singing so much as the storytelling and the shenachas and the folklore and the, the local lore about farming and the terminology to do with ordinary everyday life. So from a historical point of view, since we're talking about a history program, um, best two, if you like, will be equally important uh, as best one, if not more so, because it'll give us an insight into the the, the life as it was led at the time in the 40s and 50s, but through the Irish language predominantly. 
although she didn't uh, record only in Irish, she, she had English, as I say, and, and some of her storytelling is recorded in English as well. Very good. Well, we'll have to bring you back for that as well. The book <laughs> the book is called The Songs of Elizabeth Cronin, Irish Traditional Singer, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author, Dovi O'Cronin. And Dovi, thanks so much for joining us tonight. You're more than welcome. Thank you, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Marisa Sullivan, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. More great shows coming up in the weeks ahead as we explore everything from ancient history to the present day, the good, the bad, and the controversial. We've been Talking History. Good night.